What's good, ladies and gentlemen? Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Page Turners Podcast with your host, Elgin Bailey. We are in season four. Bam, four seasons. Episode seven. This particular season, we are walking through the myth and propaganda of black buying power by Dr. Jared A. Ball. We are currently on page 38, and I'm going to dig right in. As he is often quoted as saying, Today, 1960, the black man, according to the government and economists, has spending power of $20 billion per year. We feel that with the black man spending $20 billion per year, not creating any businesses, not creating any industry, not creating any job opportunities for his own kind, he's not in any moral position to point the finger at the white man and say that he's discriminating against him for not giving him a job in factories that he himself set up. If the black man has $20 billion and these so-called Negroes are such geniuses that they can integrate white restaurants and white factories and force themselves into that which the white man has set up, they should use the same ingenuity to show black people how to pull our wealth and set up something of our own. Now here you see the, the great Malcolm X referencing buying power in his argument uh, fighting against integration and assimilation. And I read, elements within more mainstream civil rights groups like CORE also champion buying power as proof of a need for more militancy. Baltimore CORE leader Danny Gantz said in 1968, We must come to the defense of our black brothers and sisters when we see the white man mistreating one of them. When the white racist knows that you will defend yourself and sees that black people are ready to stand together and white people are laying dead in the streets, we will not love you, but we will begin to respect. Look, man, we have been articulating and philosophizing philosophizing for years and nothing happens. We've been living for 400 years in bias and degradation. The progress is minimum, so minimum. Here are 20 million people with 25 billion buying power, and we don't own a damn thing. See, that buying power thing wasn't just found in commercial black media or pushed by white supremacists. It's also many of our... um, black leaders once regurgitated that and it wasn't because they were intentionally trying to push a false idea it's because the idea the way it was presented was presented to them in a false manner and i read dr martin luther king jr at the end of his life a point at which several have noticed His advanced political radicalism acknowledged that the value of supporting black business ultimately challenged the myth of buying power. Dr. King says, just as a Negro cannot achieve political power in isolation, neither can he gain economic power through separatism. 
While there must be continued emphasis on the need for blacks to pool their economic resources and withdraw consumer support from discriminating firms, we must not be oblivious to the fact that the larger economic problems confronting the Negro community will only be solved by federal programs in, involving billions of dollars. One unfortunate thing about black power is that it gives priority, priority to race precisely at a time when the impact of automation and other forces have made the economic question fundamental for blacks and whites alike. In this context, a slogan, power for poor people, would be much more appropriate than the slogan, black power. Now, let me tell you this. Dr. King was very opposed to the term black power. The black power slogan was made popular by Stokely Carmichael, soon to be Kwame Ture, when he was involved with SNCC. He began to yell black power against the what the civil rights leaders were pushing out there. It was this, this battle between the civil rights leaders being viewed as being passive and, 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 and not being willing to do the necessary dirty work, particularly on their stances of, uh, of armed self-defense. And then you had these younger cats, these younger inner city cats, in the likes of SNCC, who was just like, listen, man, it's time out for all that shit. We need to begin to fight back in some form or fashion. And I read, Dr. King would go on. In short, the Negro's problem cannot be solved unless the whole of American society takes a new turn toward greater economic justice. In a multiracial society, no group can make it alone. It is a myth to believe the Irish, the Italians, and the Jews, the ethnic groups that black power advocates cite as justification for their views, rose to power through separatism. It is true that they stuck together, but their group unity was always enlarged by joining in alliances with other groups such as a political machine and trade unions. To succeed in a pluralistic society and in an often hostile one that the Negro obviously needs organized strength, but that strength will only be effective when it is consolidated through constructive alliances with the majority group. And I continue reading. King was not oblivious to the limited value of black consumption, boycotting, or the pooling of economic resources, but he was also well aware that none of this would be enough. King's statement here has a critique of the conservative Nixon rebranding of black power as black capitalism, and his call for constructive alliances with the majority group was a politically progressive recognition that wealth distribution not creation, was the problem. What would be necessary for an appropriate redistribution of the tremendous wealth produced annually by everyone's participation in an economy would be national political policy mandate, the whole of American society. And such a mandate does not indeed, does indeed, excuse me, does indeed require alliances. This later point, 
was King's clarity around the inability to gain economic power through separatism. Black capitalism is a fantasy which feeds and grows from social, political, and geographic separation. However, actual economic growth requires mobility and global access, which can never occur in black capitalism, separatist radicalism. That's some good shit right there. Black capitalism is a fantasy. And I read, encouragement, inducement, however, that black politics move right toward black capitalism would culminate by the early 1970s in President Richard Nixon's policies of promoting business and electoral politics as a means of rebranding black power away from its more radical and threatening pan-Africanist, nationalist, and socialist varieties. What Nixon did by turning it into support black businesses and black entrepreneurship was intentional. It wasn't a way of trying to to somehow uplift the black community. It was, again, to squell black radicalism. And I read, as Robert Allen once described, Nixon declared that the country must give black people a better share of economic and political power or risk permanent social turbulence. By this, Nixon said, I speak not of black power as some extremists would interpret it, but the power that comes from participation in the political and economic processes of society. He didn't give a damn. It wasn't like he was on, you know, our team. He says it himself. Nixon said, I speak not of black power as some of the extremists would interpret it, but the power that comes from participation in the political and economic processes of society. In short, Allen summarizes black capitalism. Desisting traditions of black capitalism, banking, and buying power would be given new life and levels of codification by the Nixon administration. The combination of their act of promotion by first a leading presidential candidate and then sitting president combined with rapidly advancing new media technology, television, radio, including portable radios, cassettes, etc. New stages of black political movement themselves influencing and influenced by other movements around the country and world all help to further concretize these ideas more than any other time and with lasting effect. Nixon's campaign made promises to support the development of black capitalism, which involved government support for black businesses through tax breaks and promises of investment, though dismissed accurately by many as a mere tactic for election. The pre and post election focus on the project by the administration made a lasting impression. And I read, in 1969, Nixon's administration launched the Office of Minority Business Enterprise, AMBE, 
housed within the Department of Commerce, but it was not long before lack of government investment, lack of black businesses, and a lack of money within the black community sufficiently enough to propel those businesses meant that the project as a method of involving material condition of black people could not succeed. Let me go and and explain this, man. This is crucial. But it was not long before a lack of government investment, lack of black businesses, and a lack of money within the black community sufficient enough to propel these businesses. And I say that now when I talk about black businesses and supporting them and, you know, uh, all those other types of things that we say. The one thing I also will say is this. Black businesses are not being as successful. It's not because more black folks are not supporting black businesses. It's simply that the black community does not have the money. A lack of money within the black community sufficient enough to propel those businesses meant that the project as a method improving the material conditions of black people could not succeed. It's the fact that the money is not there. And I read, the selected black businesses and academic advisors forming the President's Advisory Council on Minority Business Enterprise offered a wide range report in 1971, suggesting primarily that black economic integration as a goal was best achieved by moving minority businesses from being a marginal operation to becoming more involved in the broader economy with its higher growth and profitability potential. The council explained that the concept of minority enterprise grew from this, grew from the previous concept of black capitalism and that this should be extended to a larger concept of expanded ownership. They focus on this providing a great stake of economic system for all social and economically disadvantaged persons. Ambe was gently making aware that the fact that simply calling for support for black businesses and black neighborhoods was insufficient and that economic integration into the broader economy was the only way for any business to survive. As Baradadon said during our interview, you can segregate people, but you cannot segregate money. Hers was a similar response to a critique of the claims that still made today that black people can improve themselves and their collective lot by shopping black, investing black, and making black dollar rotate in our community as it does in others. As Barana Ryan explained, wealth cannot be generated in this way because A, wealth is created by investments in broader national and global economies, not by circulation within one isolated group or economy. Most relevant here, B, black people do not have enough money to generate support and sustain enough businesses who themselves can satisfy satisfy the customer's needs and wants of an entire black community when asked specifically Has there at any point in black history been a time when all black people pulled their wealth and used it collectively that they could have overturned their persistent inequality? Her answer was simple. No.
Abe's reference in their report to the importance of purchasing power is itself important because its use refers back to the origins of the concept. This is the same thing that I was talking about when Malcolm and Dr. King and my man from CORE were using the buying power references. It's the references in those things is itself important because it refers back to the origins of the concept. The councils call that purchasing power being utilized by both public and private sectors to support black businesses powerfully recognizes capitalism's dirty secret of the need for public government backing, particularly how government investment in private businesses played a tremendous role in creating new market areas, particularly since World War II. It is also important to note that the council appropriately defines purchasing power as the ability to subsidize businesses by specifically calling attention to the government's $100 billion annually expenditure for goods and services. Here, quite unlike today, Black leadership was targeting the buying power of the United government for redistribution of tax dollars back to black businesses as opposed to targeting the severely reduced relative and mythological buying power of black people themselves to address economic inequality. But even then, from even among the council memberships itself, the program's viability was questioned. Darwin W. Baldwin, Executive Director of the Interracial Council for Business Opportunity and member of the Advisory Council for Minority Business Enterprise, said not long after that, Nixon's black capitalism was non-existent and he accused the Nixon administration of not following up on promises of federal funding support. This is precisely what many critics of Nixon's proposals say was true, say his true goal of this proposed black capitalism promise and support to offer only tax breaks and incentives, but with no meaningful investment. Wanting a black capitalism without capitalism is exactly Mr. Nixon's legacy, rebranding and propagating the myth of black capitalism was more to secure the support of white Southerners and to oppose meaningful economic reforms proposed by black activists than it was meant as any meaningful attempt to redistribute access to resources or the wealth that they produce. Specifically, while there have been always been competing black political variations, there has also been a preference among the powerful that black politics go in any direction away from all forms of left. The leftist elements representing socialism, pan-Africanism, radical internationalism, and nationalism, even those promoting more mainstream liberal or progressive integration, were supplanted or simply run over by the promotion of a more conservative alternative. And Nixon, who felt that a budgeting radicalism in black power movement was, and he quotes, a major threat to the internal security of the United States. Promoted his brand, his brand of black capitalism and the ombre as part of the flective insulating response. Quote, moreover, although ombre 
provided only limited resources to black business people. None of the numerous independent proposals for black economic development came to the full fruition. The period's discourse regarding black capitalism helped Nixon accomplish his larger ideological objective of containing potential domestic black radicalism. <laughs> discourse regarding black capitalism helped Nixon accomplish his larger ideological objective of containing potential domestic black radicalism. So what he was doing was intentional. Oh, okay. Despite the efforts of Foreman in 1969, Richard Robert L. Allen in 1969, Boggs in 1971, Ofari in 1970, most African Americans apparently either gravitate toward the variety, jeez, toward the various derivatives of black capitalism or toward Bremer's call for complete integration into American society. And I think that's where we land at nowadays. It's either one of those two places. It's either one of those two places now, right? It's either black capitalism or complete integration into American society. Black leftists are a small but mighty number. But we're in between black capitalism and folks who are completely trying to integrate into American society. And I read, Nixon's desire for containment potential domestic black radicalism was simply his adherence to existing national policy. It was his internal Cold War. Already in motion was a Central Intelligence Agency program, COINTELPRO, designed by J. Edgar Hoover and his Federal Bureau of Investigation, which was designed to attack all varieties of left politics. We hear oftentimes how they attacked and sabotaged the Black Panther Party, but let me read this again which was designed, COINTELPRO was designed to attack all varieties of left politics, targeted specifically at the black liberation movement. Its express goal was to, in part, prevent the long-range growth of militant black nationalist organizations, especially among the youth. To discredit those as black rebel rousers, leaders of those hate groups from spreading their philosophy publicly or through the communications media, the subsequent law and order policy and a war on drugs policies of the Nixon administration, which were only more recently admitted to be Nixon's targeting of his two enemies, the anti-war left and black people were only part of a broader interest in limiting the form of black politics would take. Most relevant here is that these attacks left little room in a rapidly advancing, consolidated, penetrative new media public sphere for critics of black capitalism or buying power. It is the political and class arrangement between more conservative variants of black nationalism and adherence to black capitalism, 
with the Nixon brand of black buying power, which was propelled, which has propelled adherence to the myth of buying power over the earlier critiques or the evolving variants of black radical politics and the like today. It is simply access to more organized and penetrative media and punditry that has clouded discourse of buying power and capitalism, more broadly speaking. That is, the contemporary form and popularized concept of buying power originates in the desires of black businesses wanting more advertising dollars for their media outlets. And today it is very descendant of that early black-owned, black-targeting media who now follow the same precise patterns of thought. From there, existing limitations and flaws prevalent in dominant media environment like take effect, further circulating the mythology absent any vetting. From its origins in government and business statistics meant to manage a rapid, unequal society, buying power was largely reshaped in the mid-20th century by a black commercial media and business class encouraging character day implanted deep within the black political consciousness as an economic solution to inequality. Though not alone, John H. Johnson's originating promotional materials and print media empire consisting of Ebony and Jet were followed a generation later by another Johnson, Robert, no relation. This Johnson and his multimedia empire consulting of black entertainment television, along with media mogul Kathy Huge, Radio One and Television One Networks, with the assistance of popular media personalities, most notably Tavis Smiley and Tom Joyner, the myth of black buying power would somehow create a forced inheritance of sorts and a new potential ubiquity. As joiners, sponsors have made clear. <laughs> ABC Radio Network signed Joiner in 1994. When you have talent that has loyal and dedicated audiences, advertisers will pay a premium for that, says Trogue Kelly. Keller. We identify early on the urban marketplace as an undeserved area. No shit. We found it on because the buying power of African Americans estimated at more than $572 billion is growing faster than the general market. Today, there's a waiting list to advertise on Joyner's show and associates with his clients. Joyner has shown a flashlight on some of the ugly little secrets in its business, exclaims Deborah Gray Young. VP and the Director of Media Strategic Services for E. Morris Communications, which currently buys Joyner's show for Walmart. He has pulled the cover back. There are still marketers that don't understand the unique proposition of this segment and are always going to think that they can use mass media to capture the African-American consumer. Boy, oh boy, oh boy. Mm-mm-mm. This book, boy. Mm-mm-mm. 
This one was heavy tonight, ladies and gentlemen. But I thank you for tuning in to the Page Turns Podcast, man. Shout out to Keystone Digital. All the Keystone Digital family. I appreciate you guys. I'm thankful that I am part of the team at Keystone Digital over there. Look out, ladies and gentlemen. We are on the verge of doing some powerful and great things over at Keystone Digital. I appreciate you guys for tuning in to another episode of the Pace Turners Podcast. And again, your host, Elgin Bailey. Until next time.